I'm really excited this morning that we have people in the house. Amen. All right. You know, I, I wasn't here the last two weeks because I had uh, Pastor Adam, Pastor Mark were speaking, and I noticed I walked up this morning, there's two little bears sitting here, and one said, smile on it, and the other one said, you're doing great. I don't know. Uh, those guys needed those teddy bears to get them through the last couple of weeks. I don't know. But uh, I actually need people, and it's so good to see you, and it's just so exciting to be in the place where we can worship together. And let's keep praying with our, uh, agreeing with our premier. He's hoping that by the July 1st weekend, we'll be fully opened as a province. Wouldn't that be awesome? Then everybody could come to church and we would have just uh, an exciting time. You know, sometimes we, we start out with, you know, these are the things we need to pray about. How about some good news? Anybody open for some good news? Anybody want some good news? All right, so that little gal that was singing here in the front, her name's Ann Peters. She just got engaged to be married. She just, uh, Luke, congratulations on asking Ann. That's awesome. Uh, That's great. So they're going to get married this August, and my youngest daughter, Rachel, is getting married this August. So we got some big weddings coming up here uh, in a few months, so we're excited about that. So those are good news stories. But I'm going to have a stand this morning. I want to bring greetings from Dr. Matthew Thomas. I was chatting with him. Uh, he's currently in Chicago. They are, they, you know, he's just left India here a little over a month ago, and they're having tremendous difficulty in India. So I want to pray for India. Uh, people are passing away there, even in his own church family. Uh, they've lost another three people to COVID. So they've now lost uh, 29 people. 29 people. Yeah, well, 20, I thought it was, it doesn't matter. It's right, 29 or 30 people in their, in their congregation have died. I can't even imagine losing 30 beautiful people from our church family. Could you? That would be so painful to me. Uh, And so it really has affected Dr. Thomas. We're going to pray for him. He just wants to thank our congregation. We have supported them financially with extra offerings to help them go through this time of challenge there. And here's the good news. None of the students or the orphans have gotten COVID. So they've been restricted. They've been living in a compound for like the last 15 months, but nobody's gotten sick. So we're really grateful for that. Uh, Thank you for your generosity. I want to pray as well. Uh, Edsel, who, you know, is part of our worship team, his aunt passed away yesterday from cancer. I want to pray for that family. And then my brother, Fomin, he has a friend named Nicole, and uh, she's concerned that she might have cancer. I want to pray for her as well. We're going to pray today. Maybe you have a great need on your heart. Let's, let's bring these needs before God today. How many here, just by an uptiful hand, say, you know what, I have a great need, or even a small need. It doesn't matter. As far as, far as God's concerned, there's no great need. Because God's the God of the amazingly impossible. And so, Lord, we just want to bring these situations before you today. Lord, we think around our world, we have missionaries in many different countries. We have people serving in Myanmar. That's a a country in tremendous conflict. We pray for grace uh, for people there, Father, all of the conflict, the military conflict going on there. We think of India with uh, many people are dying of COVID there in the nation of India. We pray for especially Dr. Thomas's congregation. We pray that you'll continue to bring healing and grace in their, their lives, Lord, as a people, Father. Uh, Lord, we're connected. We're going to hear this today. We're connected as brothers and sisters, not only uh, in our local church, but around our world. All of us who call on your name, Jesus, 
We are brothers and sisters. We're part of your family. We're concerned about their well-being, Lord, and even as you are, and so we commit them to you. I pray today for Nicole that you will touch her, Lord. I pray uh, today for Edsel's family, Lord, that you will minister grace and comfort to to them as a family in this time of loss. Lord, you are the God of all comfort. I pray, especially in this moment of time, that you will be with them. And I pray today that you will open up our hearts. Lord, I recognize that even if I communicate ideas and concepts, Lord, it takes the work of your presence, your spirit, Lord, to make these truths become living realities in our lives. And these are life-changing realities. They can transform us. They can inspire us. They can shape the way we live our lives. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will open up the eyes of our understanding. You'll open up our minds, our hearts, Lord, to what we're going to hear today from your word and it'll become a living word and it will become a transforming word and we thank you for that in Jesus name and God's people said amen amen you may be seated we're going to continue our series from the book of first Peter you know last few weeks I think we've uh, been reminded of the incredible tensions that we see continually boiling over in the Middle East. I mean, it just seems to always be happening, always conflict, you know, rockets, and, and we're constantly praying for that part of the world. And at the center of the tension is a city called Jerusalem. You know that word salam, shalom, is actually the word peace. Here's the city that is a city of peace, and yet there's conflict. How many think there's little irony in all of that? And yet we notice that the city of Jerusalem is actually the heart of the three great monotheistic faiths, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And in Orthodox uh, uh, Judaism, there's an idea in Judaism of this idea of uh, physical proximity to a holy place. And over the years, I've had the privilege of taking some people to Israel. And one of the things we always do is we go to the Western Wall, which is really the retaining foundation where the temple was once built and was then destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And so in the Jewish mindset, especially the Orthodox Jew, the closer you could be to the temple, the closer you were to God. Because the temple in the ancient world was where gods were housed. And so in the Judaism, there was only the worship of Yahweh, the one true and living God. And so David, uh, uh, gave, you know, under his son Solomon, they built this amazing temple. And then it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then it was rebuilt again. And then it was expanded upon during the days of Jesus. And so it beautiful, magnificent gold dome. I mean, you know, like today when you go to Jerusalem, you, you see pictures of Jerusalem was that gold, uh, that, that, that uh, basically it's a mausoleum. It's, uh, it, it's not even a, a mosque. It's, it's a place where they, there's a shrine. And you see that beautiful picture when you're looking from the eastern part of the city or from the Mount of Olives, you're looking down on the Temple Mount area. And actually the Temple of Herod was three times the size of that current facility. Can you imagine the splendor? It was one of the ancient, seven, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 
And so when you get there, one of the things that happens, you see people praying at that western wall. That's, they're, they're crying out to God there. And then some of us, you know, we've, we've done this as a tour. You go into the, what they call the rabbinical tunnels, and you're going along the retaining wall, but now it's, it's underground in a sense because it's, you know, all covered up by years of building up, and you're going underneath there. And then you get to the place where they feel like it's the closest place to where the temple site was. And that, in, the, in an Orthodox Jewish person's mind, that is the most holiest of holies. It's the most holy place. It's a sacred place. And so there's these sacred places in their understanding. And yet, God in his desire to relate to humanity has moved this concept of a sacred physical proximity to himself to actually a transcendent idea. And it's simply this, that God now wants to live within the human heart. It's so profound, it's so powerful. You know, I've entitled this message, Living Like a Rock Star. <laughs> you say, well, what does that really mean? Well, you know, I, I did that on purpose to catch your attention, right? You know, when you think of a rock star in popular culture, it probably means the idolization of all these fans. It means fortune, fame, and many other things in life that may not be appropriate, <laughs> right? That's, that's true. But, you know, God has rock stars too. I don't know if you know that. And if you're a child of God, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, if you put your trust in Christ, you are one of God's rock stars. Because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to bring out this idea, it's a metaphor that Peter and Paul use uh, as writers in the New Testament to explain the nature of how God indwells his people. And, and the metaphor God uses is actually the temple where God lives and dwells within this temple. And the temple today is you and me. We are God's rock stars. That's, not, that's kind of an amazing thought, isn't it? Uh, and so the temple is no longer just a, uh, it's about a physical earthly building, but that holy place is actually found in a person called Jesus, and later on in the hearts of those who are followers of him, who call him Lord and Savior. Now, I think there's a number of fascinating Old Testament passages that speak of this idea of stones. And we're gonna look at, you know, even the name of our church, Living Stones. A lot of people say, what's that all about? What? Actually, today is an explanation, if you're really thinking about it. So here, the Bible talks about stones, and one of the most powerful imagery is found in the book of Daniel, Old Testament book. And Nebuchadnezzar is this Babylonian world emperor, and he has this crazy dream. Anybody ever weird dreams? And he has this dream of this great big image, it's huge. And the, and the top is made of gold, and then the body uh, you know, part is made of silver, and it's, it's, it's like an image of a being, a person. And eventually it becomes bronze, and then it's you know, partial clay and iron. And then eventually in his dream, he sees this mountain growing up, and then a stone comes from the mountain and shatters this image. And Nebuchadnezzar's tormented by what in the world does this mean? You know, because the ancients believed that dreams had great significance. And so he calls all of his, uh, you know, wise people that try to tell him. He's really tricky. He doesn't tell them what the dream is. He says, I want you to tell me what my dream was, and then you can tell me what the interpretation is. How many know it's pretty difficult to do? Uh, in other words, you can't just make up something. You know, if you can come up with what the dream is, I know that'll be the right interpretation. And we read the story in the book of Daniel. Daniel, uh, and, he, and by the way, Nebuchadnezzar's ruthless. If you guys don't come up with this, I'll just kill all of you guys. 
uh, that are supposed to be wise guys in my, my kingdom, right? And so Daniel's like, and his friends are just like, wow, we're in trouble here. And they cry out to God. And God reveals to Daniel the actual dream and its meaning. And he tells it to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head. You're the gold. You're the world empire. There's going to be no other empire as great as yours. Uh, but eventually it's going to be replaced by the empire that's of silver. And, and we know from history uh, that the next empire that came after the Babylonians was the Persians. And then after the Persians was the Greeks, and after the Greeks it was the Romans. And then the last part of the mountain growing up and the stone that slays that image is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will endure and have no end. Isn't that an amazing thought that the kingdom that you and I are participating in, even though it's a spiritual kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom and it will never end and it will overcome all the kingdoms and empires of this world. That's the picture that Daniel is explaining the, the meaning to this uh, ruler. And eventually here, not only uh, did we have that one picture in the book of Daniel, but David Helm points out to us that there were other elements in the Old Testament speaks of the stone as well. Isaiah had a vision of a stone, and he says this in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord, see, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Wow, I like that. Here's a place where you can really put your hope. That's what he's saying. David Helm says it this way. The psalmist also spoke of a cornerstone that would bring salvation to all who believed as well as a stone that would be a stumbling block for those who rejected it. And so deeply embedded in the strata of Israel's rich history was the conviction that she was God's kingdom, that Jerusalem was God's saving city, and that the temple stood at the center of God's activity in the world. And that's why when you're reading in the Old Testament, it's, when the Israelites go into captivity, they're lamenting because they said, if I forget you, O Jerusalem. It's not so much it's the physical city as what it represents. It represents the presence of God. And so when we look at, you know, in Judaism, when we look at Jerusalem, that's what, that's what the focus is. It's actually talking about the presence of God. And then centuries later, we have a young, impoverished, itinerant preacher from Galilee named Jesus who's going to come along and take all the imagery of the stone passages in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he commits in their mind the unpardonable sin of applying them to himself instead of to Judaism or to the city or to the temple. And that's why Jesus got in so much trouble because he was saying, listen, you guys misunderstand what these scriptures are all about. As a matter of fact, he challenged the religious people of his day. He said this to them in John, uh, basically, uh, John chapter 5, verse 39. He said, you study the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament text now. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Powerful. Regarding the temple, Jesus himself said, I am the temple. And he says it so profoundly when he goes into cleansing the temple. Remember that story? 
you know, they were busy, you know, merchandising in the temple. And Jesus said, this is my house. It's going to be called a house of prayer. And he's overthrowing, you know, the money changers there. And so they're all upset with them. And they're saying, who gave you this authority to do this? And so Jesus responds to them because they say, you know, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do the behavior that you're doing at the temple here? And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it again in three days. Now, here's where we recognize that what Jesus is saying and what they're hearing is two different things. How many know that can happen in communication? You could be saying something and meaning something. The other person is hearing it but not understanding it. Very next verse, look what he says. They said, hey, look, it's taken 46 years to build a temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? In other words, if, hey, it took 46 years. I mean, these are big rocks, folks. These are not little stones. I mean, I've, I've been to seeing the retaining wall. Some of those stones weigh, you know, half a ton, a ton. I mean, these are major blocks of stone. And, and they're saying, hey, this took 46 years to build. Jesus said, you're going to build this in three days? Uh-huh, uh-huh, right. But notice what Jesus said. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. He was saying that his body, see, a temple is the place where God indwells. And Jesus was basically saying, you know, my body is really where God is indwelling. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken to them. So the New Testament clearly states that God himself was indwelling in the person of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul says it this way in the book of Colossians, for God was pleased to have him in all of his fullness to dwell in him. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, you're looking at him. Because Jesus is not just a human being. He is human, but he's also God in the flesh. That's what Christmas is all about. God became a man. God lived a sinless life as a human being. That's the essence of what Christianity is all about. And to, and to uh, validate that, when Jesus willingly gave up his life, he said, I'm gonna come back to life again. And that's what the Easter story is all about. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Uh, and it says, through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, Jesus' death was a sacrificial, substitutionary death. And what are the outcomes of this death? That through this work that Jesus did, you and I become reconciled to God. Because what were the Old Testament priests doing in the temple? They were slaying animals because God had designed it as such that sin was always, the end result would bring death. That actually our sin actually brings about uh, brokenness in human relationships. We see it all the time. When we, we and I sin, when we sin against one another, when we behave poorly to one another, it breaks relationships. And we have all kinds of fragmented relationships today. And something has to happen in order to bring about those relationships. Somebody has to humble themselves. Somebody has to lay down their life in a sense, lay down their rights, lay down their pride. But before Almighty God, when you and I sin, it actually alienates us from God and we're estranged from God. And the only way to be brought back to God is through, you know, through the loss of life. And Jesus, instead of us dying for our sins, Jesus took our place. 
Then he goes on to say here, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present to you, present you holy. This is what we're going to talk about. That. What does it mean to live like a rock star? Well, it means to live a holy life. Well, what's a holy life, Pastor? It means a life that's separated to God without blemish and free from accusation. I love that statement. Because you know, so many people live with guilt and shame. Isn't that true? And I, I deal with this all the time. People are living in brokenness. They live with shame. They live with you know, unforgiveness. They, you know, probably the person they have the hardest time forgiving, and I think that's true most of our lives, is ourselves. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves when we fail. And yet here we find that God not only forgives us, he, can, he brings about a transformation so that we're no longer living under this accusation. It brings change in our lives. So let's take to, turn to our text today and found in, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, this is speaking of Christ, notice it's in the singular, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, God the Father, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now we're picking up Peter's analogy here. This is a metaphor. You know, the New Testament uses a lot of metaphors to describe the church. It talks about the church as a bride, and Christ is the groom. So you and I are in, in, in an intimate relationship with God. You know, it talks about the metaphor of a body, that God is the, Jesus is the head, and you and I are members of the body. But here we're using the metaphor of a temple. And the temple speaks of where God lives, where God's spirit dwells. And that's what Peter is gonna zero in on. And then he says, inside of the temple, you have priests. These are people who have a unique role. A priest is a person who serves other people. They're mediators. They mediate on behalf of people to God. That's what prayer is all about. You know, I'm, I'm bringing people's requests to God on their behalf. That's, that's a mediatorial, that's a priestly function. Or if I'm speaking on behalf of God to people, that's a priestly function. And we're gonna find out who the priests are in God's temple here. So that's what I mean by living like a rock star in God's kingdom. I wanna take a look at the things we need to embrace in order to live as God designs. And the first thing we need to to embrace is the reality that you and I are God's dwelling place. I, I, I'm gonna tell you something. If you and I could ever get a hold of this truth, it could literally revolutionize our life. You know, this is such a profound thought, and this is such a profound reality. And I think a lot of Christians, you know, we don't quite grasp the, the magnitude of what God has done for us. How many think that's probably true? I don't think anyone in this room fully understands the magnitude of God's goodness to us and what he's done on our behalf. And I still remember as a new Christian, I was you know, 21 years old, I, uh, you know, I, I knew, I heard of, I've heard about Jesus, I, I knew that you know, I believed in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but I never fully got it. It was a little confusing to me. You know, I had a lot of questions, not a lot of answers. I was a little confused. But I remember in my brokenness, and I, and I recognized I was struggling with issues in my life, and it actually brought me to the end of myself, which was a huge step, because I think you almost have to get to the end of yourself to move on towards where God wants you to get to. 
You know, it, you, you have to stop trusting in yourself completely and start trusting in God. And I remember when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no concept of the transformation that was going to happen in my life and the destiny and the direction of my life was going to be totally transformed from that day forward. I had no concept of that. And most of us don't, you know. And then all of a sudden, I remember one day I was reading this beautiful text in Colossians. And I want to just read this to you because when it hit me, it just blew my mind. I, was, I remember sitting there reading my Bible. Was, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. God has made known to us. We're Gentiles, by the way. We're non-Jewish people. We're non-covenant people. We don't have a relationship with God. But something happened. God, God's plan wasn't just for the nation of Israel. God's plan was for all nations. And God's plan was to use the nation of Israel to funnel a revelation of who the true and the living God was. If you think back, there was only one monotheistic faith, that was Judaism, and all the rest of the peoples were religious and they believed in all kinds of deities and gods, but they weren't gods at all. We were in ignorance. And it says, he says, God made known among the Gentiles those glorious riches of his mystery. A mystery is something, you know, we think of a mystery as I don't fully get it, which is true, but in the New Testament, a mystery is something that God has to reveal to us. It's something God wants to show us. It's something God wants to make known to us, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I had that moment where I, it's, it finally sunk in my head when I asked Jesus to come into my life, what had really happened was the, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now are living inside of me. Now, listen to this. The, the universe cannot contain God. And God is a spirit, but God says, I'm gonna send my spirit. That's why Jesus said, it's important that I leave so that my spirit could be sent to you. You know, remember Jesus, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. How can he say something like that? Because his game plan was to come and live inside of us, that you and I would become temples of God. And when that really hits us, it's very powerful that you and I are carrying God's presence with us everywhere we go. No wonder the psalmist says, where can I escape from God? <laughs> you can't. He's there, he's, that's true of even everyone. God is everywhere present at one time. But in a very unique way, he lives inside of a believer. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. I keep, I have to, you ever have your little conversation with yourself? I actually talk to myself. And I say, hey buddy, listen, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. It's not about your life. It's about what he wants you to do. It's not all about you. It's about him. You're not living for myself. I'm living for Christ. I have a higher calling in my life. I have a higher purpose. You know, my heart breaks when I hear young people struggling with the meaning of life and not wanting to live. Can I tell you something? There is such an amazing purpose. You were designed by Almighty God from eternity. God has a purpose and a plan for every person he created. And when you and I get to know him, we get to live out this amazing plan and design he has for our lives. How amazing is that you know so we don't have to walk around going why am I here on the planet 
No, God has something in store for you, something amazing, something beyond you, something that is even beyond your imagination today. God's game plan for our lives is even greater than when you and I can even think or imagine. And I just get so bummed out when I hear people trying to figure out, like, what am I supposed to do with myself? I'm going, surrender completely to God and let God begin to direct your life, and he'll take you on a journey that you will just go, it's way beyond what you have ever thought. And it's true. He says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Well, secondly, we have this amazing calling. Now, I was going to go through here, and I'm going to skip this, because I I could easily go down and give you some background. I'm going to skip over all this background stuff and the significance of the Old Testament and how exclusive it was and how they felt like unless you were close to the temple that you were like, you know, unclean, impure, and unholy. That's why the Galileans were never really accepted by the Judeans. And that's why, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees were always looking down on everybody. Okay, and everybody felt bad because they weren't very holy. I'm not going to share all this stuff. I, there's just... Uh, you know, I could be preaching for hours, and I'm not going to do that to you. How's that? I'm going to skip over all this good stuff. But you know, you can always ask for my notes. I'll give them to you. How's that? Wow. Look at all that good stuff. Going right on by it. Okay. But let me move on to here. Time, time slips away. Peter now uses Old Testament text regarding Jesus as the key to the relationship with God the Father. All right. Here's what we need to know. Uh, I was moving too many notes myself here on my page. Verse 6. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. What's he doing here? This is going to shock you. All Peter is doing is quoting verses from the Old Testament from this point right down to verse 10. He goes, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. Or to state it positively, we're going to be honored by God. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Here here they are building the temple. And what they would do is cut these huge stones. I'm telling you, some of them were so amazingly large. They would be sitting there, huge blocks of stone. And when you look at how they laid them one on top of the other, it's just a marvel of engineering. It really is. But sometimes the builders would come along and reject certain stones, okay? What's he saying here? You know when Jesus came? Can you imagine this? Here's the God they said they worship. Here was the one they were anticipating, the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and they rejected him. That's what this is talking about. They rejected the stone, which is reality. God, God says, you may have rejected him, but he's, God's the architect. The builders rejected what the architecture said. This is the cornerstone. This is how the whole building needs to be framed around. This is, this is what's going to measure humanity's life, is the life of Jesus Christ. See, if you want to find out what is the standard for being truly human, read about Jesus. That's the true standard, what it means to be truly human. 
You go, yeah, but he's God. Yeah, but he's truly human. He's showing us how human beings ought to live. It's powerful. And a stone that causes people to stumble. You know, people have a problem with Jesus. You know, I, I, can, I can prove this to you. You can try it out. You can walk through, you know, Red Deer and say to them, uh, what do you think about God? Or who do you think God is? You'll get all kinds of different responses. But if you start talking about Jesus, I guarantee you're going to get a whole different ball game. How many know that's true? Jesus creates problems for people. Really amazing. Just mention the name of Jesus, you're going to get a reaction. It's either going to be very positive or very negative. Anybody kind of notice that? I, I rarely get neutral viewpoints on person of Jesus. Gets people going. It causes people to stumble. It's a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message, which was also what they were destined for. The message here is the good news about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And Jesus explains this text from the Psalms to the religious leaders as the vast majority of them rejected him. As a matter of fact, when you go to Luke's gospel, chapter 20, verses 9 to 18, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard. And he, in this vineyard story, it's a picture of God saying, I'm the one that gave you everything you have. And the, remember, the tenants come along, they rent it out. And so the owner comes along to, you know, get his take on what's been grown. In other words, they're accountable to the owner. But what do these tenants do? They decide we're not going to pay the owner anything. And so, first of all, they throw stones and chase off his uh, ambassadors, his messengers. And Jesus is using this analogy to talk about all the Old Testament prophets that came along and spoke to God's people. And many times, they were totally rejected. But then, you know, the, the owner says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. I know they'll honor him. Now here's a picture, what is Jesus saying? He said, God the Father has sent me the Son to you. But he said, you know what they're gonna do to the Son? They're gonna say, let's kill him so that we can get the inheritance. Let's get rid of the Son. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is painting this picture. And you know these guys are so smart, they know that he's painting a picture and he's the, he's the Son and they're rejecting him. And they're upset with that because they think Jesus is a false Messiah. That's why they kill him. I'm gonna show that to you. As a matter of fact, uh, Karen Jobes, who's a New Testament scholar, she says this, a well-developed interpretive tradition already apparently existed in Jewish writings that identified the stone with the Messiah. And all that remained for the New Testament writers to, was to identify Jesus as the Messiah. That's still the problem today in Israel. By the way, you know what's happening right now? Some Jewish people are accepting the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah, and it's brought transformation in their life. So when I go and visit there, some of them will tell me, well, there's different sects in Judaism today. There's Orthodox Jews, there's Reformed Jews, and then there are Messianic Jews, the ones that say that Jesus is their Messiah. So there's different groupings. We, we all think everyone's in the same camp. No, they're not. But this is fascinating. When Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin, listen to what happened. The high priest said to Jesus, here's the question he raises in Matthew chapter 26. But Jesus now was remaining silent before his accusers. I put that little note in. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what he wanted to know. Okay? That's the crux of the whole issue. Listen to what Jesus says to him. You've said so. And then he said, but I say to all of you, now Jesus is going to add, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. That, that just flipped 
the high priest read out. He, he just, he got so upset, he said, that's blasphemous. Because what Jesus was saying there, because I think they had an underdeveloped and misunderstanding of the nature of who the Son of Man was. They kept saying, who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? As a matter of fact, that, that's the term that Jesus used above every other term about himself in the Gospels. How many notice that? He doesn't walk around and say, I'm the Son of God. Usually he says, I'm the Son of Man. But we don't, we don't understand that term. But Daniel uses it in an Old Testament prophecy in a very profound way. Because that's verse 13. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. But you know what? Most of us, we're not, we don't think biblically the way the Jewish people do. They, these guys are highly religious people. They already knew what the next verse said. Can I give you the next verse? He says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. Worshiped who? The son of man. How many know you only worship God? His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What was Jesus telling them? He said, I'm actually God in, in human form. And they lost it. That's why they killed him. They thought he was a false messiah. They crucified Jesus. Very powerful. Uh, now, Jesus comes back to life three days after being crucified in the same city, and this is so amazing. So you have these festivals. In the Jewish mindset, the center of life was what? The temple. Under the Old Testament law, all Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate three religious festivals a year. The Passover festival, which was uh, an image to their time of deliverance from slavery out of Egypt. And they became the people of God, the covenant people of God. So they would kill a lamb on the Passover, which spoke of the shedding of blood. And remember in the story in the Exodus, they planted that blood over the doorpost so that the angel of judgment would pass over them. Jesus dies on the Passover. Jesus said, basically, I'm gonna be the Paschal Lamb. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at all the religious overtones and significance of what's going on here. Now what happens, 50 days later, is this feast called Pentecost. It's the feast of ingathering. It's the feast of harvest. So what happens on this feast? Well, Jesus now has appeared to his disciples living for the last 40 days, has been showing up, appearing to big crowds of people, up to 500 people in Galilee. Okay, no wonder people believe that he rose from the dead because this is not mass hallucination, folks. P Jesus was actually eating with them and everything else. And then they saw him ascend into heaven. And then on the 50th day, he, he did that. And then on the 50th day, while they were in the upper room, the Spirit of God came upon them. And then Peter preaches a sermon. And thousands now become believers that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus, uh, Peter is telling them, you know what, da David talked about this, that he, his soul would not suffer corruption. David was not talking about himself. He, 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 you know, he decayed, his bones are with us. We have the tomb, but Jesus never experienced decay because he rose from the dead and thousands came to faith in Christ. Now Peter is continuing on in the city of Jerusalem and now he's being arrested by the Sanhedrin and he's brought before them. And what does Peter say to these guys? Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And he said, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind 
by which we must be saved. Wow. Can I tell you how profound that statement is? Jesus said it this way when he was speaking to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the access into the presence of the living God. Jesus has made the way. And that's why you have all this powerful significance that when Jesus died on the cross, the very time his life is expiring, something supernatural happens in the temple, the the temple curtain that was keeping people from the most holiest of all places where only the high priest could come in once a year and to offer an atoning sacrifice, the temple curtain is torn from the top to the bottom and the writer to Hebrews, which, which is actually a sermon explaining how Jesus is actually the way to God showing us this is the access into the presence of God. And when you and I come to know Jesus, we actually have access into the very presence of God. You and I are like the high priest. We can come into the presence of God because we have the atoning sacrifice before Almighty God so we can be reconciled to God and our sins can be addressed. This is so amazing. Some of you are going, I'm hoping I'm not losing you. But, you know, the Bible is so interconnected, folks. It is so beautifully orchestrated. And it comes down to acceptance or rejection of Christ, and it's being foretold. Howard Marshall says, Here Peter is employing the picture of a stone that has been dressed or cut and sits ready for incorporation into a building. And the builders have passed over it as being unfit for the task. They cannot see that it's the right one, but they're wrong for the stone in question has been approved by the architect. And the Psalm says the rejected stone is not merely laid as part of the building, but as the main foundation stone on which the whole building depends. And everything in our life depends on the person of Jesus and who we think he is and how we respond to him. So, not only is the person and work of Jesus makes us acceptable to God, but Jesus is also rejected, as Peter's hearers can relate to. Because how many understand this? And I like what Karen Jobes writes. She says, uh, Peter's readers can no doubt relate to the experience of rejection since they too were being rejected by their society as being unfit. You know, I don't know if you understand what was happening in the first century. You know, the Roman Empire, they, had no, they were syncretic, syncretistic in their religious viewpoint. They believed in all kinds of gods. It didn't matter. You know, you could believe in anything you wanted to. You know why the Christians got in trouble? Because you could believe in all of your gods as long as you worship Caesar as Lord. Okay? As long as you, you had allegiance ultimately to Caesar, they didn't care what you believed. The problem is the Christians wouldn't do it. Well, some of them did because they were afraid, but most of them wouldn't. Why wouldn't they do it? Because they said only Christ is Lord. They had an exclusive faith. There was only one Lord in their mind, and so they were martyred. Many of them were considered unfit to live. They were considered as traitors and seditious in that, that empire. There was a lot of persecution against the church. You know, they didn't, they weren't in step with the rest of the culture. And every time 
people, when you and I are in step with God, many times we're, up, we're out of step with the rest of the culture. When we're like that, we get persecuted. That's what happens. It's not that we ask for it. It's not that we're looking for it. It's not that we're trying to be weird or different. But we have this unique relationship with God. And sometimes people don't understand why don't we pursue the same things that other people pursue because we don't have an interest in those things. You know what the thing that happened when I became a follower of Christ? I began to lose the interest in the things that I previously was interested in. And all of a sudden I had a whole new affection. I had a whole new hunger. I had a whole new desire. I had a whole desire to please God, to know him, to study his word, to get involved with him, to do what was right in his sight, to desire to please God. Boy, before that, I had a one desire was to please myself. Now all of a sudden, you know, I had a desire to please God. I came out of nowhere. God changed my heart. That was a work of the Spirit of God in my life. So why do people stumble and disobey? Peter says in verse 8 uh, that they were appointed to do so. Now he doesn't elaborate on this. There's a lot of theological debate over what does this really mean. Some take it to mean that stumbling is inevitable once the word has been disobeyed, but that God does not appoint people to their disobedience. Um, Frank, who's a commentator, says it means not that certain people were destined not to believe, but that God decrees is that those who do not believe will stumble and fall. In other words, if you don't trust Christ, you know, you've got this big rock in the road. His name is Jesus. You've got to do something with him, right? It's either you bow down and worship him or you reject him. And because of that, you stumble as an individual. That's what he's trying to get across here. Others argue that the appointment is to disbelief, which then necessitates resulting in stumbling. But let me just move on to the second idea that I'm going to briefly touch on. You know, is applying that calling into our lifestyle. So, okay, I have God living inside of me. And it says here that we're called to be, you know, a living stone. He's the living stone, but we're called to be living stones, you know, we're called to be, you know, people that are part of the indwelt presence of God. And, and Karen Job says the Christian church is not primarily a social organization, but the new temple where the transformed lives of believers are offered as sacrifice to the glory of God. The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from the community with other believers. What, what she's saying. Well, this isn't, you know, individualism. This isn't just, you know, I, I, it's all a personalized thing. No, you and I are together. You and I are growing together. You and I can't do this on our own. We have to do it together. And we all have different gifts. God, just like the human body has different parts. How many recognize that? How many appreciate that you have, you know, you don't, you're just not, you don't have eight eyeballs in your head and no toes. You know, you know I'm just telling you, you'd be going a little weird, right? I have great vision, but I just can't get around. You know, you follow what I'm saying? So what I'm pointing out to us is we can't just walk around going, well, I don't need other believers. That's nonsense. You and I are incomplete apart from each other. What completes us is our relationship one with another. We actually need each other to really develop and grow as a healthy person. So we are the priests that offer spiritual sacrifices. Verse 5, I've already read it to us. We're a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know what? The Old Testament priests are killing animals every day. That's what they're doing. Because the wages of sin is death, they have to have a substitute for their sin. But that's not what we offer anymore. It's a spiritual sacrifice. So what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, verse, 
Romans chapter 12, verse one, I love this verse. It says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Step number one, if I'm, if I'm a, a worshiper of God, I offer myself in its totality. There's no holding back any part of my life. I give it all to him, you know. Then what are some of the ways that we offer ourselves completely to God? By what we say and do. Okay, look at verse 13 of the book, uh, chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly profess his name. Isn't it a beautiful thing that you and I can offer praises to God, that God actually inhabits, the Bible says, our praises, that you and I are lifting our voices to him. You know, today when we gather together, you know why it's so powerful to gather together? It's because we have a chance to offer praises to Almighty God. There's something dynamic that happens. God's presence is realized as we're praising God. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifice, God is pleased. So it's not just, you know, I'm verbalizing things, it's also my actions, when you and I are coming alongside and helping people, that's an activity, that's, that's a sacrifice. And somebody say, sometimes that is a sacrifice, right? Time, energy, resources. Sometimes people don't appreciate it, but we're not doing it ultimately for that person. We're doing it ultimately for God. See, I'm a, I'm a priest. I'm offering these things up to God. When we share the good news of others uh, is a priestly duty. You know, it's interesting. Worship is not about what we like. It's not entertainment. You know, I, you know when we come to a, a service like this and we're at a worship service and we, we walk out and we go, wasn't that a great service? You know what? Who cares what you think how great it was? Really, ultimately, it's how great God thinks it is. We're not here to, you know, satisfy you. We're here to satisfy God. We come and gather together to offer ourselves to God and we're, we should be more concerned about what God thinks about what's going on here, not what we think what's going on here. So when people say, well, I didn't like that song or I didn't like that sermon or I didn't like this, I'm going, who cares? That's just your opinion. You know, I, I'm just being honest. I, I'm more concerned about, Father, what did you think about what we were doing this morning? Did, did you like it? Was it like a sweet aroma to you? Did you enjoy the fact that, you know, we're living for you, we're, we're giving ourselves to you, and we're worshiping you with all of our being? You know, that, that's why when I, when I worship God, you know, I don't, I don't just sit here kind of really, you know, like, uh, what am I supposed to be doing here, you know? Like, I, I want to worship God with my entire being, my emotions, my mind, my will, my desires, my heart, you know? Listen to what Paul says, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of what? Proclaiming the gospel. Do you know right now I'm, I'm doing a priestly function? What am I doing? I'm proclaiming the gospel. I'm proclaiming the word of God. That's a priestly function. When you share the gospel with another person, you're doing a priestly function. You're actually representing God to another person. You're bringing God's word to this person. It's very powerful. He says, uh, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. How do they become an offering acceptable to God? They respond favorably to the message. And now they're sanctified. They're set apart by God's spirit. God does a work in their hearts, just like he's done in ours. This speaks specifically about, you know, uh, 
what Paul was doing there. But in our text, Peter says it very explicitly. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You know, both of those uh, last two verses, they're just quotations from the Old Testament, if you know that. The first one is coming out of uh, uh, Exodus chapter 19, when they're on the mountain, and God's giving them the law. He says, you are my holy nation. Can I just tell you what's happening? What he's telling us here? When you and I receive Jesus Christ, you and I are brought into God's covenant people. You and I are brought into this relationship as a covenant person. We're in covenant with God. That's a very powerful thought. That's like marriage, folks. When people are getting married, they're entering into a covenant, not just a contract, a covenant before God. That's powerful. And the Gentiles in the past, they, didn't, they had not received God's mercy, but now they have received God's mercy. How many want the mercy of God? You know what mercy means? I'm not getting what I deserve. And all of us have failed. All of us have uh, sinned against God. All of us have sinned against one another. But God says, listen, if you come to me, I'll show you mercy. Oh, thank God. I never want to get what I deserve. I always want to get mercy from God. If God gives me what I deserve, I'm, in, I'm hooped. I'm in trouble. Anybody say amen to that? If you got what you deserved, it wouldn't be good. You know, a lot of us say, yeah, I want this person to get what they deserve. Oh, boy, be careful what you wish for, you know. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to, I, I want to show people grace because I want to receive grace. I, I want to show people mercy because I want to receive mercy. I want God's mercy in my life. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know, that's really what I want. You know, and we think about all of the stuff that we've, we've kind of zeroed in on here this morning. So what is Peter really telling us here? Well, it's telling us what it looks like to be a rock star in God's economy. You're a living stone. God lives inside of you. That's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. You're priests of the most high God. That's, that's an incredible honor. Let's stand as we close the service this morning. You know, I don't know how you, what your feeling is, but there's a big rock in front of you. His name is Jesus. He's this cornerstone. Uh, he's in your path. You've got to do something with him. You can't just, you, there's no way around him. You know, you either surrender to him or you reject him. And then the consequences of that is usually heartbreak on your side of the equation. That's the way I see it. That's the way the scriptures describe it. And, you know, I've been, I've been alive for quite a few years now, and I've been watching this. I've been observing this pattern over and over again. The people who are embracing Christ, something powerful is happening in their lives. God's mercy is being shown to them. God's favor and honor and goodness comes into their life. People who reject it so often, I find, you know, initially they may look okay, but eventually there's a lot of pain and sorrow and heartache. So I'm gonna have everybody bow their head this morning. Just, here's the prayer. Maybe you're here today, say, so you know what? Today I'm getting it. It's, it's connecting for me. The dots are connecting. I'm getting it. Maybe that's you today. And just, you have a desire to experience the mercy of God today. Just raise your hand and say, Lord, I'm a candidate for your mercy today. That's me. That's my heart. That's my cry. I want to receive that mercy. Yeah, people are responding this morning. I want to receive that mercy. People are raising their hands. Beautiful. It's awesome. How many here today, as I was sharing about you being the temple of God, 
How many, how many just had that moment that was a real epiphany in your soul? I was praying that God would drop something inside of you to make you realize God's living inside of you. Did that become real to you today? How many of that just really struck you today? It really became more real that the presence of God lives inside of you. How many here really struck in your heart and mind that you are a priest of the Most High God? That you're offering offerings unto God, that you have access into His presence, that your words are powerful, they're bringing life. And God is seeing it. I'm not just talking about in the church service, I'm talking about every single day, the words you're using, how you're speaking. Those are all powerful. Those are all priestly expressions. These are all powerful things. So Father, we come to you today. We thank you that your spirit is working and stirring our hearts, that you are alive in our lives. And we thank you for that. Lord, I just thank you that you want us to understand that we are your rock stars. We need to learn how to live like one. Not, not the worldly rock star, but the God kind of rock star. We're the living stones because you're the living stone. You've given us a pattern. You've shown us what it means to be a royal priesthood, Father. You're showing us what it means to be your people and that we're accepted by you, Father. We're forgiven. Wow, that's so powerful. Lord, may it begin to define and shape our lives. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.